Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, we've talked a bit of baseball of late and I want to continue because it's so much fun and you have such a depth of knowledge and love of the game. So we thought we might look at some of the older players that uh, I remember. I didn't see them all, you did. And the first name on the list, Johnny, has to be Mr. Pesky, I'm guessing. Am I right? Well, it could be Johnny Pesky. And, you know, I wrote down a number of names here, and uh, that's all I wrote. And um, rather than have you go through all of them, which is about 15 of them, I'll just give a very short, uh, you know, quickly go through them and just say what I think. Um, Yeah, Johnny Pesky was wonderful. Everybody remembers uh, the play when... Uh, in the 1946 World Series when he threw the ball home and uh, I guess uh, on Harry the Hat Walker's uh, looping what single that should have been a single to left field and call and um, Dom DiMaggio had left the game with an injury and Pesky got the relay from Culberson and threw it home and Eno Slaughter scored all the way from first base to win the World Series. Well, Johnny Pesky was a great second batter had over 200 hits in his first three or four major league seasons, stuck with the Red Sox, made uh, made Wade Boggs a great third baseman by hitting endless grounders to him. And uh, Johnny Pesky lived a long life, had a wonderful wife, and he was a great guy. Um, the uh, Don, who am I thinking of? Don. Um, Let's go to Bobby Doerr. Well, oh, Bobby Doerr. Bobby Doerr was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I don't. I think he was the greatest fielding second baseman I ever saw until I set eyes on uh, Dustin Pedroia. But you know, Bobby Doerr had more power as a batter. He was a constant All Star, and now he's a Hall of Famer. And uh, he lived almost to a hundred. Died only a few years ago. Until then, he was the last player living who had played in the '30s, and uh, he was just uh, fantastic. Well, Dropo, I remember mm. when he came up with the Red Sox, would do nothing but hit home runs his first year. He drove in something like 144 runs as a rookie and hit 30-something home runs. Great. Um, uh, Vern, Stevens Vern Stevens coupled yeah. with uh, Ted Williams one season. Each of them drove in 159 runs. Uh, they were, they were you know, like Lou Gehrig that year. They were like Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. Uh, Rico Petroselli, it, you know, not only was handsome uh, and wonderful as a player, smooth hands, so good at third base or shortstop, and held the home run record for shortstops when he hit 40 until it was broken by uh, A-Rod. And uh, Rico uh, was, a, you know, as, as soft as his hands were, that's how soft his personality was in the sense that he was a gentle, loving husband who moved from the wilds of Brooklyn to make his home forever and the Boston area, and you got to love Rico. I mean, I did. I thought I was just fascinated. And do you know, maybe you do know this, I had this album. He cut an album with John Kiley around the 67 series uh, where Rico was playing the drums and Kiley was playing the organ. (laughs) And it's not exactly, you know, Dave Brubeck, but it's interesting. That's all I'll say. Well, you know, Rico, he was named Americo, and uh, which is, I think, uh, not a common name, but a, a name that a lot of Italian immigrants uh, 
named their children. I think his mother and father were from Italy, and they named him Americo and uh, shortened to Rico, which uh, is nice. Um, and, you know, just Rico's one of my all-time favorites. Me too. Hawk Harrelson was something because he was a real wild liver who did uh, have uh, a life after baseball with Chicago. He was appointed general manager for a while. But the Hawk was only here, I think, one season, but he hit 35 home runs, and he lived in Brookline. And uh, Hawk Harrelson, you know, was memorable. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what I meant, uh, who I meant by uh, Don, Don. Oh, Dom. Dom DiMaggio. Yeah, Dom DiMaggio. Oh, you know, Dom DiMaggio. Now, Dom DiMaggio. The little professor, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's a funny thing. You talk about the DiMaggio brothers. Okay, no, there's no question that Joe was a great, great player. And I loved to watch him when he came to. And I got some stuff to tell you about him. But he was was sort of a, uh, how can we say it? Um, He could be uh, uh, an irritating guy. He would get angry. He Mm. was moody, stuff like that. Um, he was very close to his brother, but his brother was very close to Ted Williams, and uh, Williams and DiMaggio, of course, were great rivals. Uh, but uh, Dom is another guy that came here from San Francisco, and he said, I like it here. And he was not a West Coast guy. He was an East Coast guy. And he retired, even though he was still at the top of his game, because he was injured when he came back. Uh, the manager, Lou Boudreau, wouldn't let him play because uh, some rookie who never came really amounted to anything in the major leagues. Tom Umflett, begins with a U, was uh, having a streak, and Dom said, I'm out of here, I'm retiring, and he left. Well, after he retired, uh, he um, he became a really successful businessman. And I heard him interviewed just the other night in a 20-year-old interview where Dick Flavin, who at that time was a handsome guy, uh, and he's still a wonderful guy, and he's still nice-looking, uh, interviewed Dom DiMaggio not too long before he died. And Dom was just charming, telling about his wife and how he found her and life as a businessman and life as a Red Sox player. And uh, he plainly, and everybody knows this, plainly was a man of extremely high intelligence and good character. And not only that, they told him out on the West Coast, you're too small to be a player. And they, you know, but he said, I want to try. So he played in the Pacific Coast League, and his last season there, this guy, too small to be a player, batted 358. He had a lifetime average of 298, which today would make him a multimillionaire. Yeah, 298, and and, uh, he was was known for his fielding, but he could hit. And uh, he was a great player and uh, a wonderful guy. So that. Oh, it takes oh little... Dr. Strange Glove. Yeah, that was... Uh... Dick Stewart? Yeah, Dick Stewart, and uh, he could hit him. He, he, he was a big, glunking first baseman. Yeah, he could hit the ball the... a mile, but right, yeah. he, not very good defensively. No. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Strange Love. Jim, would that be Jim Rice? Yeah, Jim Rice. Yeah. Short, snappy swing, lots of home runs, real power hitter, one year over 400 total bases, Hall of Fame player. Now he's... Uh, broadcaster, but he wears strange clothes sometimes. Uh, he does, but he's a very soft-spoken guy, and he had trouble with the press, I remember, as a lot of guys do. He wasn't comfortable around the, the reporters. Players are personalities, and they they have, you know, they're temperamental, some of them. But, but Jim Rice was a, a great player. John, the guy I spoke of before, John Caulfield, came from Baltimore, and he said they used to fear Jim Rice because he always would hit like crazy in Baltimore. Um... 
Fred Lynn, you know. Oh. Tell us about what do you think about Fred Lynn? Well, I I love the 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 fact that he came up with Rice and they were just amazing from 75. But Fred Lynn could do things in the field, make amazing catches. He did, he, he was an all-purpose superstar. And then what happened? He got injured, or, I guess, or his career petered out a little bit. No, I, actually, he had a fairly long career of about 16, 17 oh, years. Oh, did he? Okay. And he, if you look at the record book, he made 20, I think the number was 22. He hit 22 home runs, I don't know, four or five times. And um, uh, he never rose to the eminence of winning the MVP like he did in his second year as a major leaguer. Or maybe it was his rookie year, but he always was a very fine player. He ended up with the San Diego Padres in 1990. I didn't realize his career continued that long. I was very sad when the Red Sox oh, bid yeah. him goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but a great, great natural player. Uh, and then you've got uh, a couple of real Red Sox favorites, Rick Burleson, the rooster. Well, you, you have to have seen Rick Burleson. I mean, you can't see it in the statistics, but he was a real fighting character mm-hmm. and a good shortstop. And he just, he knew how to win, put it that way. And then you have another great example of uh, strength in the lineup, Dwight Evans. Don't call me Dewey. Dwight Evans. <laughs> and and he was known for a lot of things, uh, consistency, pretty good hitter, but his arm that arm from right field could throw anybody out. Well, in the sixth game of the World Series in 1975, he made that fantastic catch off uh, the second baseman, um, who am I thinking about, two-time MVP in that sixth game, uh, you know, the... Joe Joe Morgan? Joe Morgan, yeah. yeah. He hit it way back on the right field corner. He made a circus catch and then doubled the guy off first base with his arm. I saw him play his first game. He had a triple. That was the year he came up. And uh, he developed over time to be a feared power hitter. He wasn't at the beginning, but he did. Now he's a marginal, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of guys in the Hall of Fame that he was a better player than those guys. He hit 385 homers. I'm looking at his stats yeah. now. Yeah, and drove in about 13, 40. Yeah, 1384 runs and an average of 272 lifetime average. Pretty yeah, good stats. Be, he could be, well, with his fielding, he should Oh, be. my God, he should be, Absolutely. Uh, a couple more names on this list. You mentioned Pedroia. Do you want to talk about him and his career? Well, I've never seen a second baseman like that, and uh, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame for sure because his fielding records and his batting, you know, he batted lifetime two ninety nine. Can't argue much about that. And he was always a very, you know, he had over 200 hits two or three times. And he was a, But his fielding was unbelievable. And I said before, maybe because he was so close to the ground, he made acrobatic plays that couldn't be I mean you watch the Red Sox second baseman this year there were a thousand balls that got by that Pedroia would have gobbled up that's true that's true a couple of other names here and uh, you've covered so mo- so many of them you mentioned Manny Ramirez earlier in an earlier podcast an enigma in search of a mystery uh, and Manny Ramirez we loved him he drove us crazy but he did win us a world series or two well, I think Manny Ramirez is one of the best hitters in baseball history. I mean, the guy had, except for right at the end, he dropped below a thousand, I think, to nine ninety eight uh, in in on in uh, what do they call it OPS? Yeah. And a thousand is unbelievable. I mean, a lifetime a thousand. Um, you, you have to be not only an, a hitter who can hit well for average, but you got to be one that is powerful, and he. Hit over, I don't know, 600 home runs. Mm. 
And um, he was just a, a great, great hitter. Now, he was a little bit of an oddball, no question. But I loved him because I, I could see that his natural ability as a batter was really off the charts. And uh, Do you remember the time he went into the scoreboard, had a door you could get in there, and during the game, and I believe the batter was up and he went into the scoreboard to relieve himself apparently, which was very gentlemanly of him. He didn't do it in front of every 35,000 people. Well, get me, Manny being Manny could well have done that. Yeah, I remember that specific uh, incident. Uh, we just a couple more here on this list. John Lester, I believe, one of the great uh, relievers in Red Sox history. Not relievers. Uh, starters, I'm sorry. Well, you know, John Lester, he just retired. The just other retired day. The, the other day. His... I mean, he beat cancer when he was young. Yep. Uh, the Red Sox didn't want to pay him, so he left. Um, he brought. Uh, he was three times uh, World Series winner, twice with the Red Sox, and then under. Uh, we'll talk. Maybe talk a little bit later about, um, about Theo. Theo Epstein. Yeah, but um, he he. You know, Theo said, "I'll take him," and he pitched great for Chicago, and they won the World. They became champions. And I rooted for him in that series because of his history. And he wasn't he good in that. He series. He was fantastic. You know, if you and, look up his lifetime era. It's earned run average. It's about 380 or something like that. But his lifetime World Series earned run average is like 2.8. So this is a guy who rose to the occasion. And he just retired. You're right. Recently, like as we taped this a couple of weeks ago. No, within the last week, I think. Or very close to that. Um, Here's a name that uh, became – this is the nickname, Uke. Uke. Kevin Ukulis, um, who was another one of those dirt dog style players. Well, Euclid had a short career, and I think that he played uh, from the time he was 15, and he petered out at about 33, but nobody thought he was going to be anything. They brought him up because he had been in the system for a while. Uh, they thought they talked of him about him as the guy that walked all the time uh, and uh, couldn't hit, and he became a power hitter and ultimately a cleanup batter, hit 28 or 30 home runs, Three or four times was a terrific fielder. Switched from third to first. Played superlatively of both. Set the record at that time since broken for uh, for errorless games in a row uh, without an error at first base at something like 140 or 50. And so Uke, uh, Uke was a, a short-time great player. Now, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame, but he is a memorable player. Very popular player. Uh, fans loved him. Uh, as they loved Nomar Garcia Parra, and uh, I, I laughed when I found out where the name Nomar comes from. It's Ramon spelled backwards. Yeah, that's right. Basically. But what what's your take on Nomar? Oh, I love Nomar. I thought he was a terrific player. Uh, he might have taken a few drugs here and there. Um, his When he started out with the Red Sox, um, well, first of all, his lifetime average is like 314. Now, that is a lot better than... Uh, then, uh, uh, no, it's about the same as his rival, Jeter. Um, you know, the three of them came up at about the same time. Uh, Jeter and Nomar Gassiapara and A-Rod. Now, A-Rod was by far the most powerful of them. And, uh, and Jeter lasted the longest and won the most championships. But Nomar, in his first several seasons, uh, was, um, was uh, you know, out of, the, out of sight. Something happened in his life. Uh, I think when the Red Sox traded him, he never was, you know, he griped about a few things and they traded him. And um, he never really was 
fantastic after that. Good, but not fantastic. Had a few good seasons with Los Angeles. So he didn't carry forth through his entire career, which was relatively short. I think he played 12 or 13 seasons. But he never followed through with the what he showed in the yeah. first several when he had consistently 200 hits and 30 home runs and well, over 100 runs batted in. Let me get your take on this. So oftentimes, particularly in baseball, players trade, teams trade, laundry they call it, and new uniforms. And they're either that much better or that much worse. It's something about the aura of playing on a particular team. Red Sox have always had guys they've traded away that have come back to kill us, right? And I'm sure other teams feel the same way. It's well, because they're playing in dynamic. Fenway Park again. Yeah. You know, players love playing for the Red Sox because um, they like the ballpark, first of all, because it's, you know, all the others are cookie cutter and the Fenway is really an unusual field. And the fans are really knowing. They're, they're avidly for the Red Sox, but they appreciate the players from other teams that play well, like the story I can tell about Joe DiMaggio. Well, let's, let's get into that because I, I promote – the fact that we were going to talk a little bit about the quote-unquote enemy players. In in his day, DiMaggio and then the DiMaggio-Ted Williams thing, we all remember 1941 and all that, the the, the average and the streak. But what's your, what's your take on DiMaggio and his mythic return? Well, in 1947, I think it was, DiMaggio missed the, the first half of the season with a bone spur in his heel. And uh, he was due to come back in a three-game series that the Yankees were playing against the Red Sox. And it was a close series. Um, you know, they were close at the time in the stand-ins. So everybody said, well, DiMaggio, he'll need, a, he'll need some time to get his timing back and so forth. Well, in that three-game series, <laughs> Joe DiMaggio destroyed the Red Sox. In the first of the game, he won the game with a home run off Maury McDermott who was a left-handed phenom, who was pretty good when he came up. He was like 19, could throw the ball very fast, won quite a few games, but he didn't have a great career, but he had a you know notable major league career. So I, And I was at that first game on a Friday night with my father and his partner in the shoe business, and uh, there was Amagio winning the game. On Saturday, I think he came up, I think he might have hit a home run off uh, the guy that was such a great reliever for the Red Sox, Ellis Kinder. Oh, yes. I remember that name. And uh, I, either that was Saturday or Sunday, but he whacked one into the <laughs> center field bleachers, and they won that game. And then on Sunday, they won. The, he hit another home. Well, he hit two home runs in one of the games, uh, maybe Saturday or Sunday, but he hit home runs in all the games, four in total, resulting in three Yankee victories. <laughs> and so the fans... The Red Sox fans, you know, were not delighted by the result, but they cheered Joe DiMaggio because they knew they were witnessing a really great player who was elegant at the bat, elegant in the field, although I think Dom DiMaggio, his brother, was a better fielder, but they were both great, great fielders. And um, so uh, I think that it um, – I think I remarked in a story I wrote, does that mean – why is that? Why do the people around Boston cheer enemy players? Nobody else does that. They're, they're vitriolic when they hate enemy players. Are we? Is that why we're a blue state? Do we understand democracy? This is all before this well, trouble came up. Well, we certainly have rabid fans who really understand games beyond just the local. I mean, you, you see – let's take basketball, for instance. You see a great basketball player come through and play the Celtics – 
there's a certain grudging respect, and people do recognize that in any sport. But even Brady, when he came back to play for Tampa at at Sullivan, I'm Sullivan Stadium, at Foxborough Stadium, got a standing ovation. Gillette. Is that what it's called now? It, it, uh, how many stadiums have we had with different names? Gillette, of course. Mm-hmm. He came back and got a standing O. You know, afterwards they booed him when he was playing the game. But I think I think New England fans should hold their heads high. I think that's a very well. You know, I, I still you know I'm not a great football fan, but I love Brady. And why, why do I love him? Well, uh, you know, he's first of all, I, who I mean, he's he's the best player in the league. He's le- he's going to lead them to maybe to another Super Bowl at forty four years old. At, at forty four, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, he's got over five thousand yards passing to lead the league. He's got forty something touchdowns. I mean, it's an incredible story. Um, he was came to the Patriots as a second or third string rookie quarterback, and he has advanced to the point where he literally is considered. The best player that's ever played in the NFL. Getting back to the baseball theme, uh, you have a phrase here about Ted Williams, he can fail too. He was an amazing player, probably the greatest hitter of all time, but he was a human being. What do you mean by he could fail too? Um, there's a, I was in the third base stands when Jim Bunning pitched a no-hitter against the Red Sox. And uh, the Ted Williams was in that game, and he popped up a couple of times to the first baseman. I think he might have struck out twice. He did, uh, Bunning had him, uh, you know, it wasn't as though Ted hit two sharp line drives that were caught. He fooled him. Uh, He didn't fool him. He overpowered him. Overpowered him. And, you know, uh, Bunning was a very fine pitcher. And let's, we can talk a little more about Jim Bunning. So, okay, so that was, Ted can fail too. Jim Bunning was really an interesting character. He was a right-wing Republican that was really right wing from Kentucky, was it? And um, who be, who uh, went on to the National League. And in the National League, is his he became one of the few players, or maybe the only player to pitch a no hitter in either league. But he pitched one for the for Philadelphia, I think, which was a perfect game. Mm. And so he was elected to the Hall of Fame. Right. And so, then so that's elect- one great venue. Then he was elected to the United States Senate. There's another great venue. And the guy, he was almost sinister in some of the stuff that he believed. Um, But he was a great player. I wouldn't call him a great senator. But he certainly rose to eminence in two different places, baseball and politics. Yeah, he's the only one, according to the stats, to have been elected to both the Senate and the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, you wonder if there are anybody out there who, who might be a future senator. Who knows? <laughs> you know, these players are interesting people. But uh, that's a pretty good uh, pretty good record he had as well with those, those shutouts. Maybe Mookie will become a senator from uh, Tennessee. Well, you're a big Mookie fan. You've always been one. Uh, uh, I love him. And he's gone on to shine in, in uh, L.A., for the Dodgers. Oh, I got a story about Mookie that'll that's fantastic. I didn't. Um, oh, well, I wrote it down here. I just said the Mookie prediction. Okay, I've made a few predictions that have come true. I don't know where the hell it comes from. Um, I predicted that Brad Osmus would become a manager. I uh, predicted several things. So anyway, I saw Mookie in his rookie season. That was 2014. And after about, he'd only played about 10 or 12 games in the major leagues. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the Red Sox brass thought, yeah, he could be a major leaguer, maybe a marginal major leaguer, maybe a good major leaguer. He's a nice second baseman. He's not going to hit a, a lot of home runs, but, you know, he's, he, he, he looks as though he has some natural ability, this, that, and the other thing. So I'm looking at this kid, and I see him make some t- – they put him in the outfield for some reason. He made some great plays, and then um, he comes up in uh, – not in Fenway. He comes up someplace else and whacks one into the second deck. And uh, I've got power. And um, so in this – you know, he didn't have an exceptional record in his rookie season. He didn't play all that much, but he hit 290, I think. And um, so – I wrote a letter to Ben Charrington uh, after Mookie had played maybe 20 games in the league. Remind people who Ben Ben Charrington was the general manager right. at that okay. time. Right. And now he's the general manager, I think, of the Mets. So anyway, I said, um, I, this, I'm quoting now from the letter I wrote to Ben. I said, this kid will soon be, mind you, this is before anybody knew Mookie would become Mookie. Nobody thought he'd become Mookie. This kid will soon be great. I've never seen anybody that size who could hit the ball with such authority and very few with his natural ability, a fielder at bat. And I've been watching since the days of Teddy Ballgame. So that very same day, Ben writes back to me. He says, thanks for the note, Larry. I don't think we're that far away, Hmm. which I presumed he meant that they weren't going to trade him as a trading ship or something like that. And so... That's what I thought about Mookie, and that's what happened. It's interesting. Uh, scouts are working round the clock all year long, and, and you saw something that obviously some scouts saw, but it really blossomed uh, after that. Well, I mentioned Marty Appel, and Marty Appel, yeah. you know, said to me, you know, he, he he laughed at my prediction. And then I think the next season there was a game that he hit a home run early in the game against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And then he hit another ball that would have gone out, but the wind was blowing in, so the guy caught it against the fence. And I wrote to uh, Marty Appel, who you know, I'm friendly with, and I said, um, hey, that second one, would have, you know, the first one was a bomb. It went way out into the walkway between the bleachers and the grandstand, maybe 420 feet. So that, um, I, so uh, I wrote to Marty. I said, you know, you're lucky he didn't lose the game because that second one, was hit with just as much authority, but the wind blew it back. He didn't. He still didn't believe he was become. Finally, he said, "Well, uh, you know, maybe in Mookie's third season or fourth season. I mean, he's already the MVP in his fourth season, I think. So, uh, and known as a home run hitter as well as a you know, he batted three forty six the mm. year he won the MVP. And so Marty said, "Well, you predicted it. I mean, it it really happened." All right. Can we get some stock tips off the air from you? Or No, the market went down. I looked at <laughs> about 600 points today. Well, it's today. It'll go back up, I'm sure. But oh, yeah, anyway, it does. Yeah, yeah. when we come back to another uh, session, um, there are a few other uh, tidbits about the baseball thing that I wanted to get to, including, and I don't know what this is until we get there, a sound never to be forgotten. So we'll hold that for the next time, Larry. Thanks for coming up to bat and whacking another home run of a podcast. Well, I hope on the next one I don't hit into a double play. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. 
For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.